You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Society 13 Podcast Network Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com I like to listen Hello and welcome to episode 719 of the Wicked Library I'm Daniel Foytek As always, before we get started today a big thank you to our new Patreon supporters since our last episode, we've gotten new support from Kio San, Michael Velez, and Freya, and an increased pledge from Kelly Perkins. Thanks so much to all of you who took the time to get on to Patreon and support the show. We really do appreciate it. As a matter of fact, we're getting pretty close to our second goal. We are now at around $230 a month, and once we get to our second goal of $400 a month, you'll get a second bonus story. And of course, everybody benefits because our goal is to get the composers, the artists, the authors, get their work out to as many of you that listen to the show as possible. The benefit of being a Patreon supporter is you're making that happen. Those bonus stories would not exist without you. And you also get to hear them before everybody else. So again, thanks so much. Help us get to our second goal and we'll have even more stories for you. Our patrons also get a completely ad-free show and other great rewards. A wicked amount of time and love goes into making the show, so your support lets us know that you appreciate the effort. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. And if you support the show at the $5 a month and above level, as I mentioned, that's when you get the bonus stories. Finally, a big thank you to those who took the time to rate and review us on iTunes. I tell you, you guys really came through. I asked for more than one review. We had 13 five-star reviews since our last episode. Don't worry. I know everybody's anxious to get to the stories. I am not going to read all 13 of them before the story. If you did rate and review the show, I do owe you a read because you took the time to rate and review the show. I'm going to take the time to say thank you by reading your review on the show. But for all but three of you, you'll have to wait until the end of the show after the credits. It's kind of like the lottery. You never know. Is your review going to get read before the show or at the end of the show? Regardless, it'll get read. So starting with a review from J.K. Nason, a must-have show for any horror lover. This is one of the best horror story podcasts I've ever had the luck of stumbling across and is the first time I've bothered reviewing. The love and pride put into polishing each episode really shows through. An exceptional cast of voice actors, ambitious authors, and gorgeous music slash sound effects, the Wicked Library is at the top of the charts for anyone who loves pondering what goes bump in the night. The stories poke their claws into every corner of the horror genre, from magic, monsters, and murderers to aliens, asylums, and more. Most episodes have a single story that lasts about half an hour and finish with an author interview. No episode is shorter than 45 minutes. It's nice to find quality stories that span a reasonable amount of time, and it is always refreshing to hear from the author. The only downside about the Wicked Library is that I am always hungry for more. 
In short, there is only one way to summarize the listening experience. Wicked good fun. Great review. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time to send that our way. We'll move on to Dino Man 80. One of the best. There's nothing lacking in this podcast. Great format, stories, and production will have you coming back for more. So good, it's wicked. Lastly, Big Polly. Really top shelf. This is a great podcast, and I hope that you continue making it for a long time to come. Lots of excellent content. Again, thank you so much. Even more content coming for you guys. Thanks to the folks that support us on Patreon. And don't forget, if you do enjoy the author interviews at the end of the show, the young lady who does that for us, Jeanette Andromeda, she is also the co-host for the Ninth Story podcast. They do very similar interviews. They read some stories on there. A lot of good information if you enjoy creating your own content or want to peek behind the scenes as to how it is created. That's Ninth Story Podcast at podcast.ninthstory.com or on Twitter at Ninth Story Podcast. Once again, more great content coming. Thanks to all the folks who are supporting us on Patreon. Right now, it's an extra bonus story a month for those folks. And you guys, the general listeners, you get three bonus stories once a quarter. If we get to the point where we're at our $400 a month level and above, we'll go for two stories a month. And you'll get either six stories (laughs) in a quarterly basis, or maybe we'll change that to every other month or something like that to make the shows a manageable size because that would be a heck of a lot of content. A lot of work, but you guys are worth it. Thanks so much. Without further ado, today's episode is narrated by our good friend Nelson W. Piles, the gentleman who created this show many, many moons ago before he handed it over to me. This episode also features the voice talents of our executive producer, Cynthia Lohman, who is also my co-creator and co-producer for The Lift, our other podcast. And who better for Nelson to guest narrate than Jessica McHugh? So today's episode, a story by Jessica McHugh, narrated by Nelson W. Piles, additional voice work by Cynthia Lohman, artwork by Jeanette Andromeda, interview by Jeanette Andromeda. Let's get wicked. Hello, this is your librarian. After about five pints of gin, a wicked library is not a urinal cake and should not be consumed under any circumstances. <laughs> I can't even do me laugh. Listen to discretion is advised. Wait a, wait a minute. I don't remember eating him, but I feel much better now. The Wicked Library is intended for mature audiences, in spite of my drunkenness. (laughs) Sensitive listeners can fuck off. Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time. 
at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Dead Man's Call He's four whiskeys deep when the sea howls like a banshee with a crowning babe. The walls shudder and splinter and the ocean pours unchecked into the saloon. It screams louder than the rake shells clogging the bar on the bay, but nary a man bats an eye at the din, nor at the devil rising about his boots. Only Philip Cook lifts his feet in fear. A wave lavishes his barstool with foam, and his throat constricts so tight he can barely breathe. A funny little whistle is all he gets, and he has to growl until the vibration relaxes his gullet enough to fill his lungs. Men roar with laughter nearby, and Philip's certain it's for him. Lousy with Dutch courage, they splash through the saloon like the rising ocean is a miracle, but Philip knows the truth. The sea is a greater danger than any of them realize, for with its great appetite comes the torment of expulsion. They don't know how badly the sea can chew a man up, or how it can spit him out into a world that expects him to be the same. Mockery rides their bones natural as muscle, a quilt of clove hitch knots exquisitely layered beneath the tough brown hide Philip once called home. It shields them here, but the waves would loosen them like milk teeth and decorate the shores with the bleached shells of these proud privateers. The water rises, and the dead man thirsts. He's frightfully pale these days. He hasn't touched the ocean since the wreck, but patches of ulcerous sea salt coat his skin. Daily, perhaps hourly, the scarborous disease spreads. He hides the scales beneath sleeves and scarves, but the more the ocean encroaches on the saloon, the soggier his secrets become. Pus leaks through his clothing until he's greasy from head to toe, and a foul stench rises thick from his bones. Much though the Baratarians favor their gin and whores, Philip's reek flushes many patrons from the saloon. They cut him infernal on their way out, eyes to their bootlaces, but minds aflutter with ridicule. The ones who stay in the bar are no shock to Philip, for he has fallen into their ill-fated crew. Upon this, his fifth year trapped in the bay, he has learned well to detect such wraiths and promptly forget them. Save one. Save today. The woman is an umber heap of flesh with hair like a molting crow. She's been here forever, they say, but no one in Barataria Bay spins the same yarn about the crone. She wears gossip like the pelt of a black bear, piled high and doubling her mass as she cobwebs the corner of the saloon. The bag at her side is also a fixture of the bar, but unlike the woman, no one disputes its contents. The bag is an organ of chaos, neither good nor evil, but frolicsome as the sea. It produces both curse and charm, and what the organ consumes Philip can only guess but after half a decade of boasts from sailors seeking the Crow Woman's help, desperation has sacked his many suspicions. He breathes through the suffocating fear and the swelling waves spit acidic water in retaliation, but he grips the chair harder. Bracing himself for the devil's bite, he lowers one foot to the floor, but he finds the boards thankfully dry. 
the ocean retreats from his tattered boots, opening a path to the Crow Woman. It is first fair weather he's encountered since he tried to flee notorious Lafitte's in the Henrietta. The crone doesn't lift her head when he approaches, but acknowledges him with a bitter whisper. You should have gone down with her. All around him, the tavern teems with sharks and shrapnel in the bellowing locker song. It keens ravenous through his veins and sloshes in his skull so violent his brain is moldy bread in bilgewater. What'd you say to me? He asks her. The woman's feathers dance like ebony flame as she clears her throat. <clears throat> I say you best got money, son. The hungry waves quiet and Philip nods. Aye, I got money. The crow woman lifts her head slowly as if assembling each layer of her human costume like a puzzle on a turning screw. Her hair falls back from her face, a ragged raven trim for her sloppy teared physique and the white blue eyes half sunk in her skin. They do not gleam when fixed upon Philip. They are dead, discarded things like gems scratched to hell in the crevice of a ditty box. When Philip recoils, her smirk puckers to an aphid-laden rose. Blood money, is it? He grits his teeth. There's no point denying his sins anymore. The plucky son of a mariner priest who never turned a card nor ran afoul his fellow man is naught but a scoundrel now. A fool who paid dear for his first risk with the Henrietta and her crew. He's still drowning after all these years, just in a different sea. And he still prays for a good death, a sailor's death. He put a stopper in that dream long ago, he assumes. Pieces of him survived the wreck, true, but his rigging's a mess. Splintered masts and knotted cordage can't catch a fine wind, and as the water churns around him, he knows prayers are wasted time he could spend drinking. Philip is a good man no more, nor a man of the sea. For his treachery, God cast him from paradise into the devilish deep, but so foulsome was Philip's favor, even the bitter sea would not digest him. What is a man rejected by both heaven and hell? No man at all, he reckons. The Barataria horrors treat him with less regard than the horned lizards, and the only work suited to him now is best done by a mad dog. Aye, speaks the mongrel, blood money it is. The witch waves a finger in the air, her grin webbed in ungoliant dark. Two whiskies deliver themselves and Philip falls into both. The woman never drinks and he suspects why. She's fattening him up dulling his wits and he doesn't give a fig. Logic didn't stop him from joining the Lafitte's high-stakes poker game. It didn't stop him betting goods he didn't have or lost to the Lafitte's. And it won't stop him now. You wish to know the sea again, she says, and Philip gulps hard, losing droplets of precious oil down his chin. He sucks the lint liquor from his tunic and shakes his head. I've known it well. And it has known me, he says, licking his lips. Gaze rolling around the saloon, he catches the muddy glint of his fellow wraiths. I wish to start afresh, but when I think of sailing, I... I... Philip's lungs parch to a salt cave of toxic air. He grips the tabletop and his face drains to a sickly green as the furniture pitches and spins. With a grunt, he wrangles the table to stillness 
and his bellows expand with fresh oxygen. After a few moments of steadying breath, he says, Surviving that wreck ruined everything I prized about myself. I've done my time, repaid my debts to the defeats. I don't want to be afraid anymore. I want the sea to recognize me. I want to be unknown. No sins to lug around or repent. How noble. He slams his fist on the table, juddering the glasses, but not the woman. I made a mistake! The crow woman gestures for more whiskey, and Philip Cook sits opposite with his claws open in wait. The waves close around them, and though Philip's moldering stench rises like hot swamp gas, she does not recoil like the others. The soggier he is, the further across the table she oozes. Can you help me or not? He asks. We shall see. She says and propels the drink to his palm. First, tell me how you died. He remembers every second of that fateful day. They run through him like wild horses in the time between his hand closing on the glass and liquor raining divine fire in his gut. Her request is an auger, hollowing the parts of him that harbor the good of his past. His ambitions, his faith, his father's warnings... Philip hangs his head and the whiskey makes a lantern of him, hot-headed and incapable of anything but plateau and death. "'Is my first delivery to the Americas,' he says. "'My father, a former sailor-turned-priest, had long warned me of the place. I took his yarns as pure fancy back then. So queer were the tales he spun of low moral mariners. Save a few, I found most seamen lacking our Christian values.' But he spoke of these men like he spoke of demons. America, he said, was all at sea. A land too dotty to know it would sink under the weight of its own bacchanalia. But you went anyway. He nods. I got a job at Van Diemen's Land on the Henrietta, a packet bound for the Gulf of Mexico. Whatever waited me in America, the pay was worth the risk. And the adventure, I reckon, the woman says. Come now. Was your father wrong about this world? No, he's wrong about me, says Philip Cook. Thought I was strong and I believed him, but I fell easy into the game. When my soul was at stake, I lost all and fled. He clenches his jaw, but a deadly cold deluge surges down his throat. He smacks his chest as he sputters up salt crystals and gasps for air. His whiskey glass is full again and he gulps deep to melt the salt. When his chest is aflame with delicious liquor breath, he frowns and taps the lip of the cup. Naivete was the blaze that blew the sticks out of the Henrietta, he says. The Lafitte lit the cannons, but it was my fault she sank. It was my fault the crew went with her. All but you. More's a pity. I wish to remain with that sacred crew, the most revered of God's children. Like Noah, jolly survivor of the flood, he says. I wanted to die like that more than anything in my natural, swallowed by the godly sea. Ah, but naivety stinks you still, she says. The sea is not godly, boy. 
under the clouded crests and emerald swells, beneath the beauty of its skin and scales, the sea is the devil's most luxurious costume. You have lost sight of that, like a snake charmer who makes a deadly pet of his serpent. One can respect the devil, but you must fear him as well. The same goes for God if you want the truth of it. Her nose lifts and her opal eyes glitter at the ceiling. I fear it will take more than money to save you, boy. You are marked to the bone. However... The crow woman licks her lips which turn pale and slimy as dead salmon. She pulls the chaos bag into her lap and with greasy sneer removes a squishy object. This, she says, unwrapping the damp cloth, will strip your fear of the sea and protect you from its ire. The thing looks like congealed milk tangled in an ivory fishing net, colorless but reeking as if hewed by shit and murder. Philip hovers his fingers over the creamy cobweb, and the roiling waves shrink to timid whitecaps. A call. The voice doesn't feel like his when it claws its way up his throat, but the ocean in the saloon retreats further, so Philip embraces the new rasp to bellow. It's a call! The woman wrinkles her nose in amusement. Indeed. Chaos must favor you. A call is a powerful weapon. Those born with this membrane as a helm are said to be blessed, even magical. But this baby... She raises her hands until Philip's fingers rest gently on the weeping meat. ...was born on call, completely within her amniotic sac. They say things about children like that, too. It's warm against his fingertips, and though its putrid scent has not freshened... He's used to it now, even glad of it. They breathe water, Philip says. A baby born in cow can never drown. He snatches for it, but the crow woman's hand disappears into the darkness of her chaos bag, and her face stretches with a gnarled rictus. About my payment. I thought you didn't want my money. I don't, but it ain't me doing the wanting. There's a balance to such things you see, and this here talisman requires something big in trade. It'll be dangerous, I reckon, but you strike me as a man chapped enough to sense the good in the risk. Just once more. The voice comes again, ritualistic as erosion, as it scrapes over his tongue. He recognizes it at last, and his eyes filled with water. Once more, and I could go home. Bring me what chaos demands, and your home can sway with the sea, as near or as far from Barataria as you wish. She puckers her pale lips with a sloppy squelch and adds, Sailor. Philip swears he hears men laughing from the quay. As he extends his hand to the crow woman, he vows those men will not laugh long. He doesn't recall speaking, but she shakes his hand and says, Well done, you. 
Some people say the sea is hungry or lonely. That's why it takes so many good men. But it's not about consumption or company with that devil. It's not even a warning to the men who dare to sail. It's a message to the God who dares to make sailors of men. Philip Cook knows that now, and with the Crow Woman's help he can win back his dominion over the sea. It does not fear much, granted. But there is terror in its inexorable depths. It does not fear the sailor, rather the one who keeps him afloat. A ship, an indomitable woman who coasts the devil's throat around every fang and breaks herself to bits to save the one she loves. His was Henrietta. She's gone now, but there are plenty to take her place. Constance, Virginia, Iris. When he is cured of his fear, he will board the next great lady and go. Philip draws several eyes as he limps from the saloon. It's no shock. He's barely shuffled a mile a year for the last five and never toward the sea. But there hasn't been a day the water hasn't stalked him. He's defended each flood and trickle to the people of Barataria Bay, sometimes to skull thumpings he hoped might free him. But now that Philip stands upon the beach, his tattered shoes sinking into its solicitous tissue, he knows how broken he's been without it. The haunting waves were phantoms all. The daily drownings, the mockery, his rancid leprous skin are nothing compared to the devil itself. Its ravenous screams are lovelier up close, but the nearer he trudges the daring his disease becomes. The salty scales extend down the backs of his hands, hardening his joints. You are long dead, the crow woman told him. You pretend you're like the others, the sailors, someone your father could love, but you're a monster, Philip Cook. You need to die again. You need to die better. How? He stands a meter from the sea's last foamy kiss, his face downturned and the witch's voice resounding in his mind. Four identical pearls said the witch. Black as the loveliest night, and more precious than God's own cunt. With a power like that, chaos will deliver the cure you seek. You may take the call and, fearless, reintroduce yourself to the sea, but first you must pay. The beach is speckled with black stones, black seaweed, black freckles of marine flesh, but nothing to fit so lofty a description. His search is cut short anyway once the water gets a taste. Waves storm his feet with seaweed lassos that drag him to the ground. The sand and shells dig at his skin, but his disease protects him like a virgin ship. Salt and stench weave a net of scars that armor his flesh but boggy surf rushes down his throat like he's making up for lost time. It both devours and cocoons, shocking him with wallops of oxygen between acrid gluts. He's not sure what to expect when he opens his eyes beneath the waves, but he assumed hellish sights over heavenly light that radiates from the ocean floor. Deep in the Atlantic green, brighter than a Christmas moon, the primordial glow calls Philip Cook down into a familiar oblivion. There, 
He is as useless as Henrietta's boards, as good as his father's prayers a world away. But the brilliant, black-lipped oyster below him has other plans. The gargantuan oyster would be out of place even in its native Tahiti. Portions of its prehistoric girth are still buried in the silt. He'll have to excavate to open it, but he knows at first touch that this buried treasure can brighten a dead man. In clawing sand from the shell, Philip uncovers the source of its light. Hashes in the oyster's bulbous shell pulse in shanty rhythms that resurrect all the years he spent working his father's ship, before the sea sent the mariner scurrying to hide under the church's skirt. The song's rhythms make certain promises, and the light makes proposals he wouldn't dare refuse. His fingers curl under the oyster's lip, but his heart is already inside. The hashes of lights flicker, and the shanty ceases, but when Philip finally pries the oyster open, four large onyx pearls emit a glow immaculate and complex as a vascular map. Congruent with their elusive magic, the pearls are slippery as live eels. Holding two at a time is rotten work. Four is impossible, and the oyster is too large to lug to the surface. Philip has no other choice. He must hoist the treasures in a different cradle. One by one, the ex-sailor shoves the pearls into his mouth, locks them behind his teeth, and swallows their light. Despite their size, the pearls go down easy as ice cubes and rum sweat, but with the last jewel consumed, so go the sea's enchantments. A shift in oceanic pressure squeezes remnant air from Philip's body, and it bubbles out of his pores with a sickening pop. Salt invades his eyeballs and crystallizes his blood vessels, but the stone quartet in his belly expand like bubbles that lift him from the empty mollusk. He bursts from the surface and careless waves cast him to the freckled shore. He's weak as blanched straw and gasping for air when he lands, but in the moments between flashes of heaven and deathlight, he feels alive for the first time in years. But when Philip stands safe on the shore, he realizes he doesn't need the safety as he once did. With a jubilant yawp, he runs back to the water. He kicks it. He stomps through it and cackles like the men in the saloon as he teases the angry surf. The only thing that can stop him now is the sudden roar of pain in his gut. His hands jump to his belly like an expectant mother and he smiles. The pearls. This is their doing. The pearls have restored his dash fire. The pearls have stripped his name from the devil's tongue and cured him. Why then, he wonders, should he go back for the call? The shanty song begins anew. The locker song thumps jolly from the devil's heart, and somewhere upon its flesh men work to keep the fiend at bay. He longs to be with them, and now he can be. He'll bargain his way into a new woman's life. He'll befriend her, tend her, and the treasures in his stomach will send him home. But what if the Pearl's enchantments are only temporary? What if, when he dries out or passes the gems, they prove to be a poor substitute for the call's power? Gritting his teeth, Philip scans the beach. The freckles in the sand could be worthless coal or rock or chunks of excrement polished by the waves, 
but they shine with extraordinary potential now. They, too, can be precious. Philip enters the saloon and the crow woman lifts a threadbare eyebrow as if detecting his briny tang. A dirty smile spreads her face and she unfolds her hands. Her palms resemble the bottom of a staffy bull's paws, all fat pads and gnarled scars from a lifetime of dogfighting. The beach rubbish Philip sanded and shaped might not be perfect pearls, but it doesn't appear her sense of touch is any better than her sight. He drops them onto her bloated palm and the rocks ride the valleys between her scarred hills of flesh. With a satisfied grin, she reaches into her bag, deeper than its cloth bottom, and releases the porky pearls to chaos. Following a few whinges and squeals, she withdraws her hand, this time holding the damp call as promised. I reckon our deal is ended, says the crone. What will you do now? Philip tucks the call into his ditty bag and smirks. I'm leaving this godforsaken island before it sinks under the weight of its bacchanalia. I so enjoy your redemption story, and I didn't think yours was ended just yet. He draws close to her. It's the first time he's ventured far enough past his own stench to catch a whiff of hers, and he's shocked to find her sweetly perfumed. This woman with frayed plumage all about her large brown face smells rich and buttery. She smells of the open air. She smells of sugar and tobacco. She smells of desert lime. You're always here, he says suspiciously. Every day. True. But you smell like outside world. You smell like my home. Funny. But you're always here. You said that. He sniffs again. There's something sweeter than lime. Something dry and cloying as the smell of his father's church. Eyes narrowed, he growls. What the hell are you anyway? She closes her eyes and inhales deeply. That's a question best asked before our deal, don't you think? What matters now is who you are. Sad as it is, I suspected it might end this way. So I've secured your passage from the Gulf. The Kermit Line's Virginia sails on the hour, and they're expecting you. Philip Cook is a new man. The call is the most dependable sail, and the black pearls are mermaids in his belly. They dance and drag his organs to death, but remain the most glorious creatures in creation, flirting with the underside of his skin. The Quay rollicks with departures. He strolls the docks, dripping with prospect, but he's never felt drier or more divine. If the Crow Woman's bag is an organ of chaos, Philip Cook is an organ of the sun itself, a scorched seed that tames the tides and cheers the mad star's apathy toward men. The sailors who laughed at Philip for five years titter and blush like Easter children at his approach. And why shouldn't they? Every step to the sea bakes his pale skin until the day's colors belong to him. He is both ship and champagne to these brutes, and he will break majestic upon the virgin waves. All those years he spent waterlogged and dreaming, 
he imagined could be gallant and strong like he was on the Henrietta. He isn't dotty enough to think he's back to being that spry young thing, but a new splendor possesses him. What light danced in the sea now dances in Philip, blasting away the crusted salt and grime to reveal the sailor in wait. This, four pieces of immortality explain, is the closest a man comes to divinity. His peak years were the cost, family, and pride too. But it's worth it to be something beyond mortal. He has no fear of the devil again. He is a sailor again. The Red Star packet line isn't doing well these days. Sailing under the blue flag of Robert Kermit, the Virginia is smaller than the ships of the line's red and white heyday, but Philip's grateful to any seaworthy woman willing to carry him away. She and her saintly crew are more than willing. Captain E.C. Nichols and his men greet Philip as a long-lost brother as he boards the ship. They shake his hand and embrace him. They ask him about his standard shifts, if he'd be willing to take the crow's nest, and he plows merrily through the landlubber rust. He's deep in discussion about his birth when he notices a dewy sailor wink at the captain and tosses the gangplank aside. A palpable unease draws the light from Cook's bones. The pearls cool in his belly itchy as icy feathers from the crow woman's scalp as a sailor leans over his shoulder with a curtain of foamy saliva gathered between his chapped lips. Spoke to the witch, eh? What'd she say? What'd she give? I don't get your meaning, mate. Captain Nichols shoves his sneer in Philip's face. You've been a sand crab for five years. Now you're fit as a fiddle. I don't buy it. You're changed. That's what the lady does. God changed me. He's finally forgiving me my sins. God serves a lady, poor devil. Your sins are your salvation. The Virginia crew latches on to their long-lost brother and drags him for, ransacking his pockets as they slam him against the rail. Captain Nichols hoots when he finds the wad of cloth in Cook's coat, but his face goes gray when the woman with a malted coif toddles across the deck. The crone's alabaster eyes roll sluggish in her porridge face, but her smile bubbles up with cruel precision. Hello, sailor. The pillage in his belly twists with each syllable, accentuating the roar in his voice. What is this? Philip demands. We had a deal. Aye, we did. And you fulfilled your part as shoddily as expected, says the crow woman. This arrangement could have been clean. But you got greedy as the sea. One whiff of a future you thought lost, and you went off your chump, thieving like you've done every day since the wreck. Tears fill Cook's eyes, and regret pours down his cheeks like scalding oil. He swallows hard, and the rocks in his belly clatter like liar's dice. Once more, he whispers, I thought it was worth the risk. Just once more, the crow woman nods to the sailor and says, We shall see. Their fingers sink into Philip's spongy flesh and wring out every drop of bravery. It takes no effort at all, which leads him to believe the hope and magic the woman gave him were mere fancy. But when the men hurl him overboard, when water floods his bellows and the depths go to work, strangling his guts, 
relief washes over the unsatisfactory son of a mariner priest. Philip doesn't try to swim. He doesn't search his anatomy for pockets of air. And when the last sunbeam flees his body, he does not lament the darkness. His scabs wither and snap free, floating to the surface with the rest of his useless things. He is soft and disgraced and damned. The devil's favorite flavors. Somewhere between life and death, it is dog watch in Philip Cook's flesh. Everything in him slumbers but four beasts that wrestle in existence, stretching and shredding his body from the inside out. There is little pain while the ebony fledglings quit their pearls and split Philip's guts, but as they wriggle from their broken shells, clouds of blood and meat thicken. He's living chum. Too weak to fight or free the birds tangled in his guts. They don't need his help anyway. Flapping their wings, they pull Philip upward, his veins and tendons knotted in their talons as they rip him from the ocean like balloons of blood and down. The sailors are gray and retching when the crows lower Philip onto the deck of the Virginia. They rush to escape, but the witch has already cast the ship into the sea. The crew is trapped in the devil's throat, fated to watch the black pearl birds rip Philip apart. Any moment now, death will come. He closes his eyes and waits, but with the sting of a purring breeze, he detects his wounds are drying. Even his breath seems stronger by the second. Lifting his head, Philip beholds the bird still tangled in his organs, but no longer trying to pull free. They're retreating back inside, reassembling and sewing his body back together as they burrow home into their ebony eggs. His abdomen is unblemished when he sits up, his touch oddly maternal when his hand falls to his belly. Standing, he recoils at the woman's sly grin and the way the chaos bag shivers with seeming delight. What the deuce is this sorcery? Captain Nichols demands. You promised us the call in exchange for this filthy pepper jack witch. That was before I knew Mr. Cook and I still had business, she says. Philip bears his teeth, and Spittle leaps from his trembling lips. Our deal's done, woman. If I ever see again, it will be too soon. Enough of this, says Captain Nichols. He pulls a pistol on the crow woman and sneers. If you can't honor our bargain, I'll claim my due without honor as well. <laughs> the woman's brain is loud to start, but it becomes near deafening when her forehead cracks wide. <laughs> murder spills from her opal eyes. Crows split the rest of her skull open and fly from her face like a melon spitting its own seeds. They dive at the captain pecking and tearing his lips and flesh until absent honor is the least of his problems. Philip's innards writhe and shoot queasy darts down his legs until he collapses to the deck. He tries to hold the devils inside, but the brood's calls are too urgent and his flesh is butter to their hungry beaks. The fledglings burst again from their sanctuary, dripping with viscera as they go to work on the rest of the Kermit Line crew. Laughter still resounds from the woman's ruptured skull, and her tongue wags mad over a ridge of broken teeth, while Philip piles up his soggy pieces.
When the job is done, the birds return to their nests, not a joint or vein misplaced. Philip can feel their every flutter, even as the sea rocks them gently to sleep. He doesn't understand them, but he never understood his kidneys or brain either, and thinks them magical. He has a similar invisible tenderness to the birds. He tries not to show it, but there are no deceptions between he and Crow Woman now. There are no awkward pauses or judgments. Once the last of the crew is dead, she hardly speaks and dallies less than a minute among the dead. He knows why as readily as now he knows death as a wet dream. She has ports to visit and people to meet. There are pleasures to be had acquiring all the world's perfume. But she leaves. Her eyes gleam like iridescent milk. She reaches into the chaos bag, and she removes one last gift. The satchel is identical to hers, humble and devastating, and it feels like a cannonball when she hangs it from his shoulder. She gives him no instruction. He needs none. But he still thinks this woman, this unsinkable ship, will share something lovely with him on the open sea even her dirty, rotten smile. The smirk starts with bunching umber flesh, but it falls abruptly. The woman's nose sinks into her skull, her teeth loosen and tumble out like overcooked corn, and the crows explode out of her brittle cheeks. The flock yanks her up to the sky, their talons tangled in muscle and hair, into the screaming divine until the sun burns them away. He is alone on a ghost ship, a bloody new shade of blessed. He can't keep the Virginia afloat for long, thank God. And when this indomitable woman can sail no more, he will go down with her. Then fearless and unknown, a dead man will rise again and spread his fledgling wings. Oh, it's not that easy to leave the Wicked Library. There's still an interview with the author. But first, this. Hey there. Do you like legends, myths, and whiskey? Or maybe just one of those things? Then you should listen to the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. For more information, head over to legendsmythsandwhiskey.com. You've tried washing it off, rubbing, scraping, scratching, and sanding it off. You've even tried grinding, cutting, and burning it off. But still it remains. It's zombie skin. So foreign to your own eyes, you wonder, are you still fully human? Or have you become the contamination? Whether you're struggling with cold sores, eczema, poison oak, poison ivy, acne, bee stings, bug bites, cuts, scrapes, scuffs, tears, chronic rash, or any of the endless ailments we all wish never happened, the antidote is the truly endless repair. Head over to zombielips.squarespace.com to buy the antidote. Become human again. Get yours today.
Welcome back to the Wicked Library again. <laughs> I know. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, hey, I'm a regular. I like being a regular. <laughs> it uh, feels good to be regular. <laughs> it, I know, right? It's gotta, it's gotta be a good, good feeling that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm really, ex- I'm really excited about it. It's, it's a wonderful thing <laughs> to be involved all these years i don't even know why they keep asking me back (laughs) i think it's It's because we like your stories (laughs) it might have something to do with it i guess just just a little um you're also just so damn sassy and amazing how can we not have you on (laughs) you know i yeah i don't know you guys are just way too cool for me (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i think the librarian has a crush on you that's why he's just like come back and read more stories oh my gosh but the librarian only because like the librarian scares the balls out of me (laughs) like that that must be a huge turn on i guess it must be Definitely. So to uh, those of you who are listening, this is Jessica McHugh. She's been on the Wicked Library a lot. Um, (laughs) If you didn't realize that, then you haven't been dreadfully paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) If you're new, welcome. You should go back and listen to our other stories. There's tons of them. I'll link to them in the show notes. But (laughs) if if you're around a lot, um, you should recognize her. (laughs) Um, So... I, I think the first thing I want to ask is, where the heck did this story come from? Um, <laughs> so it's really funny. This this was kind of one of those magical um, kind of inspirado situations where um, I was, I had been read. I saw some video on Facebook. I think it was, it was like in, during the summer of last year and it was about babies born in call. So they're like born in the sack and you have to like, it was this really cool video of a baby born and call in call where it was just kind of moving around like in the placenta and everything. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so weird. And I started like, I started doing research just because I found it so fascinating. I didn't know that was a thing that could happen. Yeah. And then it, it turned out like there was all this really cool kind of history and folklore about, um, uh, pirates and you know people or sailors used to try to buy the call it would uh, it would cost a lot of money but it was it supposedly stopped you from drowning it was huh. good luck uh, because babies that survived I mean they were said to you know they were really great sailors because they could survive drowning because of being in the call or being born in a veil sometimes they call it um, and so I was just I, I was just fascinated by this and then a couple of months later um, my friend Maddie Cash um, who uh, runs Berdizo Books he was putting together a uh, 12 Days of Christmas anthology and it was uh, all uh, just for cha- it was for charity and it was um, all proceeds were going to the Cystic Fibro- uh, Fibrosis Trust mm-hmm. and he was just like I'm still looking for I had some people drop out and would you be willing to take four calling birds <laughs> and like for, and like it seriously it struck me like a bolt of lightning I just imagined I like I had just this horrible image that came into my mind and I was like yes yes I'll do it <laughs> so I knew I wanted to do something something with birds obviously but I wanted to do mix in the call and and uh, the sea and I really wanted to to play with that 
imagery and because I had never really written a a sea story before Mm -hmm. and I was I was just kind of jazzed about the idea after doing all that research and uh yeah so that that's how it came about and it was I mean uh it's so funny looking back on it now I'm like oh such a delight it was so fun like everything was great (laughs) but like during the time I like wanted to kill myself oh no (laughs) because it was just the last minute no no it was it was because I you know I don't I it's so um so much history in it Mm. and I wanted to make sure I was getting everything right and um yeah, I, I've even now all that research I've done is left my brain because I moved on to the next story and had to fill my brain with new <laughs> history balls. So, um, yeah, I just had to do a lot of research and I was stressed out that I wasn't going to get everything right. But um, in well, the end, yeah. I, I, I really I loved how it turned out. and I just ha- I have to get used to do to now when I write a story these days, I think I just freak out about it. And <laughs> just got to trust that it's going to all come together in the end. Yeah, I think you're getting really good at just having it come together. But one of the yes. things that really, really struck me about this story was how much detail you did have in it. Like, yeah. there were just chunks of it. I'm like, am, am I listening to Moby Dick? Um, because yeah, there's I- just that much depth to, like, oh, specifically, I don't know. At one point, you say something about clove hitch knots, and I'm just like, oh, that's exactly what a sailor would say. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. So, I mean, I really... Um, I, I had to do this recently too when I was writing a story um, in based in uh, New York 1870s and I was like I don't know anything about that so I basically just go looking for um, novels that were written you know during that time I went oh what was and now I forget the name of the book but I, I read a book that was written basically after the like a decade after the um, the time in which uh, Dead Man's Call takes place, nice. and it was an, a sailor story. It was basically like a um, it was the ghost pirates or the pirate ghost mm-hmm. or something is what it was called. And I basically just you know read it and kind of tried to soak up the the narrator and the the, the terminology and all that kind of stuff. If I can get into that character and stay in it, it'll last. <laughs> like into my real life. <laughs> like I get so I love doing uh looking up old timey slang and pirate slang nice. and like all that stuff was so it's so fun playing those characters. So I mean I, I'm glad that it that it came across that the detail didn't seemed authentic. It it definitely <laughs> felt <feel> authentic. authentic. <laughs> um and <laughs> So now I'm curious, like, what was there any slang that you learned during this process that has kind of lingered in <laughs> your daily um, life? Not anymore, because I, I had to replace it with New York oh, slang nice. recently. <laughs> um, I can't, yeah, I can't remember, but I definitely was... There were, there were bilge, maybe? I said bilge a couple times mm-hmm. as far as, like, calling something calling something gross i'm like oh bilge water or something like that <laughs> it's like the nasty water at the bottom of a ship <laughs> that collects Ugh. um there were there were definitely a couple of things but yeah it all got replaced by new york slang with bone box and a jack jack of legs and all these weird terms <laughs> so what is bone box and jack of legs i'm curious bone box is mouth so oh. you're like, shit your bone box. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that one's my favorite. Jack of legs is a tall person. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> I like those. <laughs> yeah, that one, Um, I, I, there was a thing I found online called the rogues lexicon Ooh. that 
is huge and it has so much it, it just has so many crazy words and terminology in it from the late 1800s and it's oh my gosh it's a delight i i loved learning new words and phrases and just incorporating them. Boombox is the best. Oh, that's awesome. I, I need to start using that. Because shut your mouth is just too close to the point. It's just like, shut yeah. your bone box. Like, okay. <laughs> you feel really, it's really satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> it almost sounds like, like, like a really just filthy word, but it it's not. Like, you're like, wait a minute, are you talking about my teeth? Like those bones? Yeah. My outside bones? <laughs> Which bones are we talking about? Yeah. <laughs> or... yeah so i mean that's all i because i I get so nervous when i'm writing stories like this but they're also so fun to like immerse yourself Mm -hmm. in the world even if it's not 100 percent accurate i'm sure there are historians that can well Hey, any but historians out there, let us know. <laughs> or yeah, don't. Yeah. Please, please don't tear me apart. Oh, <laughs> she tried. tried. <laughs> I tried so hard. <laughs> so would you say that the research was the most challenging aspect of this story? Yes. Um, also, I mean, I was really... Sometimes I go off the rails as far as... Um, metaphor and description Mm -hmm. this one i mean this one was really tough i try i wrote a lot of it while i was um inebriated (laughs) um like i said i was trying to get into character nice um so i i would i just uh write stream of consciousness for hours um while i was drinking okie dokie rum and cokies and (laughs) i would get up the next morning and i would have six pages of gibberish (laughs) <laughs> and when I mean it's, it wasn't gibberish, I mean, it, it, a lot of it made it into the story, but uh, there were parts where I just went off and uh, I kind of, finding that balance mm-hmm. between metaphor and still keeping it in the realm of um, the, of the of realistic, the realistic realm where you're not just going so far off that people are like, I don't even know. Were we talking about anxiety? Is the water anxiety or is the shark my mother? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I did think that Simple was interesting about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that if you... I, I can sometimes get too lost in in the symbolism and metaphor of it all and need to remember to rein it in and still keep it somewhat grounded. Even when it's floating in water. Even that may or may not be there. <laughs> that yeah. I found really interesting was was how um, it, it, it I couldn't quite tell if he was like in his own head actually or actually floating in water or like was he dead? Was he a ghost? Like or did he just... <laughs> feel like he was just this reeking pile of lost person like it was just it was kind of interesting how you floated in and out there (laughs) yeah yeah so I mean I definitely wanted to I mean since um it was about like a year and a half ago I was uh diagnosed with an anxiety disorder so um for me it's and coming to terms with that and like having that become like a part of my life and you know this is this is part of me now and you know I take medication for it but I mean I try not to you know over medicate so now in my stories a lot I feel myself wanting to personify anxiety in a way and depression as well in a way that I perhaps hadn't 
done in the past in a lot of my stories um especially like um after after my cat passed away a few years ago like i i definitely noticed that like a lot of my stories got steered more into that um personifying of the the horrors that i now was feeling you know so very deeply for the first time ever anxiety depression grief mm -hmm. um which i think are are some of the biggest emotions that make us human and you know when it's almost like when that all that happened it unlocked this uh thing in me that i that allowed me to access feelings and stories and characters that i hadn't been able to access before and as horrible as you know i was like oh it sucks i have <laughs> i have panic attacks now and i yeah. have to take depression meds but but also it it, it really it opened a lot of doors for me artistically and also in a way uh, connecting with people around me and sharing my story and listening to their stories you know it really it made me a lot more conscious in my writing when i'm building a character and building how they perceive the world around them hmm. so uh, in my mind it was you know the the water and all that kind of stuff was in his mind yet still very real to him i think that so i think it was yes to all those the questions <laughs> you know i think i think that uh i think he literally was floating and drowning and suffocating he was filled with salts and and all this stuff i think it was literal and it was metaphorical you know depending on who you asked in the story i i love it and i just like I'm excited because at this point of uh, while we're recording, I have not done your thumbnail yet for this episode, but I have so many <laughs> ideas for what I'm going to do um, because there's just so many just delicious details to dive into. It's just so visual and so oh like visceral, cause especially that ending. Oh my God, where like <laughs> uh, <laughs> the four blackbirds and that ending. Yeah, that ending was pretty much what popped into my head when I when he's like do you want to do four calling birds and I was just like yeah <laughs> I want to write that <laughs> that yeah that was delicious to write that was definitely you know through all of the hair pulling shit slinging like I I was going crazy editing the story when I when I wrote that and then reread it and reread it I was like yes Okay. <laughs> I kind of know what I'm doing. <laughs> Here we go. It seriously, seriously surprised me because it was, you know, you had the crow woman, so you planted that seed, like, early on, but you really didn't push it. You're just like, she's just the crow woman. Why? Because she's the crow yeah. woman. Whatever. Ignore that. Look at all the water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, into the sea for the pearls and it's like it's it was so like sea based and then all of a sudden it's like, Oh my god, now I understand the crow yeah. thing. <laughs> I hope Oh my god. Yeah, it was that's such a weird it's such a weird story how it but it tumbled out that way. <laughs> so strange. I really didn't I, I had to move a lot of stuff around, I remember, but all in all, like when I sat down and just wrote what I thought the story was going to be about 
you know, which I do a lot, just, you know, stream of conscious, just let it go. And I look at it after I've written this very nebulous outline and I'm like, what? <laughs> okay, let's roll with it. Let's see how this works. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's the fun of it. Kind yeah. Of. <laughs> that's Figuring awesome. out what you, what the hell you were trying to say to yourself and then how to communicate it to the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very, oh my God. I, this is probably one of my most excited I've ever been to listen to a Wicked Library. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Of mine. <laughs> and just see how it all like, Although blends I did, together. I do like extract- Extraction still. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was a good one as well. <laughs> so what else have you been making lately? Because you're just kind of a powerhouse for published productivity. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm. I'm definitely. Uh, I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna take this week off actually, and not write this week um, because I'm doing a lot of uh, leading a lot of creative writing workshops. But nice. I, uh, I'm working on. I'm doing a story a week again, which I did in 2014. Uh, oh. But this time around, I'm doing all flash stories, and they're all related. Mm. Um, no character names yet. I've written 25 of them so far, and it's it, I'm gonna tie them all together in this collection called Webworm. Ooh. It's a very it's it's it started out kind of normal, but it's taken a weird Lynchian turn that <laughs> I don't I couldn't even begin to explain <laughs> right now. But it's turning into something very interesting. So I'm doing that and. Uh, I'm, I'm working on the sequel for Rabbits in the Garden, Hairs in the Hedgerow. Uh, should be, I hope that it'll come out next year. I'm working really hard on editing it. It's just, it's a monster. <laughs> it's very long and I had to cut about 20,000 words from it and it's still long. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm still still working on that. And what else? Oh, I'm planning, um, getting ready. Oh, I'm currently writing a young adult horror novella called who died in the house next door (laughs) that's gonna be i'm trying to go for a very rl stein fear street kind of feel um and then i'm in nanorimo i'm gonna write finally write a motherfucking heist novel yes (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome finally I, oh my god, I'm so excited. It's been on my board forever. I feel like I've been planning it for like four years. <laughs> I'm finally going to sit down and write it, and I'm probably going to go insane. But <laughs> Maybe. I'm or you'll figure out the perfect insane. heist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well going see, it's, it's, it's turning into a weird thing where it's also an intergalactic game show called a motherfucking game show. So Amazing. It's... <laughs> It's weird. <laughs> I would expect it's nothing less. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm doing a lot of stuff. I'm playing around. Of course. <laughs> That's one of the things I love about you specifically is uh, like anytime I just pop in like to your your website and stuff, it's like, oh, look at all these new things that just magically appear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I uh, I do a lot of shiz and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm. I definitely. I'm excited because I'm going on vacation soon, and I'm. Nice. I am gonna write on vacation, but I'm not. I, I'm not gonna write as much as, <laughs> as usual. I'm not gonna bring like deadline work with me. I'm just gonna maybe write 
some poetry or some short stories or something inspired by the the surroundings nice. but no work work <laughs> good you deserve a chance to like mildly unplug your your brain every once in a while <laughs> uh, yeah hey man i i watched like the entire season of orange is the new black yesterday so nice. i i'm not i i have my binges and my my relaxation too That's believe good. me <laughs> So I guess one question I do have for you is like, what kind of routines have you built for yourself to stay so productive and so like tuned into that creative part of yourself? Um, I mean, now it's so, it's so hard because it's, it's different now. Back when I, you know, worked a full-time job, it was a lot more of, you know, just the drive to get away from the full-time job, mm -hmm. honestly. Um, but now that that writing is my full-time job and I, you know, I have to get up. Summer is different, too, because I teach a lot more workshops. But um, when I get up in the morning, when I first started doing this, it was very, it was very easy to pop out of bed. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm a full-time writer. Look at me. Like, I edited 5,000 things today. I'm going to go have a margarita. <laughs> like, it was, uh, I don't even know that girl anymore. <laughs> and now it's <laughs> I'm a lot more I, I'm definitely a lot more uh, jaded <laughs> than I was starting out I mean I still get up and, and, and do my work but I do it a little less enthusiastically than I did at the start of, of writing full time and that's and that's only because I mean it, it is I knew it was going to be hard but it is it is a lot harder than um anyone I think can ever communicate and uh and the fact that like the first year I I pretty much I made a lot of money off of short stories and whatnot um then when I started focusing on my novels and trying to get those done I mean you don't get uh, novels don't really pay uh, uh they certainly don't pay immediately <laughs> um so you know I had to start picking up part-time jobs here and there I have awesome part-time jobs I do you know I write freelance I write children's typing tutorial stories that are nice. that, that are animated and they're they're lots of fun they let me go crazy on them I write sci-fi I write talking rabbits and one of them is rabbits in the garden canon which is fun nice. um <laughs> uh, and, you know I, I lead food tours in my my hometown historical tours so I get to tell stories stories that way and then I you know I teach creative writing workshops which I think is crazy because it, it because it is I don't know why they let me do that um but <laughs> so I mean I I do all these things now to supplement mm -hmm. that it I mean it does kind of take it takes a little bit of the out of, a little bit of the joy out of it mm -hmm. it, it does feel more um, when I get up to work on, on my stuff, I'm, you know, I still do it. I'm still happy to do it, but, um, it, it does feel a little bit more like, uh, being chained to a desk. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I don't like sitting at the desk. I don't like sitting in front of the computer all day. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still handwrite everything. Um, but you can't do that editing. So I, you know, I don't, you know, I try to use my, I have a standing desk as well. I try mm -hmm. to move around. I move, I move around the house a lot. And, um, I try to break it up by doing yoga and dancing. I dance around the room a lot too. <laughs> awesome. So I try to, I try to keep my energy up. Mm -hmm. 
because if I if I don't move around a lot or enough, I start to sink down in my chair, and then I get on Facebook, and then like my face becomes the keyboard, and then I'm sucked <laughs> into the computer, and then Freddy Krueger fucks with me, and I don't like that. Like so, I mean, no. I, you just so for me, like you just kind of you gotta force yourself to be up and energetic. I mean, there's really. I, I would love for, for people to think that I'm always super happy writer girl, which I am. I mean, I love I love my job. I'm super, super privileged and grateful to have it. Um, but it's, it's it's not all sunshine and lollipops, baby. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it definitely sucks sometimes because you can't you can't not write because you don't feel like writing. Yeah. You know, if you want to finish your novel, if you want to put if you want to eat, if you want to buy that six pack. <laughs> I mean, you just gotta, you gotta sit down and do it. It's not, nobody's gonna do it for you. And just because you're tired and just because you feel like you have no creativity left in your brain is no excuse for not getting at least some kind of work done. It doesn't have to be the writing. If you really think that what you're gonna write is complete garbage, then you do research or, you know, you re you do editing, you do something, something Mm -hmm. that's going to inspire you or something that plotting any kind of brainstorming you know yeah or sometimes like sometimes it just helps to take a break and do some yoga like get some blood into your head turn yourself upside down <laughs> and, and recharge story will, like yeah the story <laughs> will fall from your feet to your head <laughs> and it'll be fine there you go sometimes they're just stored down there yeah you know <laughs> So I'm not I'm not magical. Uh, I, I can't. It seems pretty magical. Not, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not 100% pep all the time. <laughs> I, I gotta get up and force myself out of bed. Yeah. Yeah. Know. Sometimes it is hard. I like to. I, I have crazy dreams, so a lot of times uh, if I if I hit my alarm to try to see what happens at the end of my dream, I I might not get up until ten. <laughs> I can sleep. I'm good at it. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, I've gotten definitely into that habit, too, because it is like I do a lot of yeah. artwork and everything and just get up and just keep trying. It's like, all right, what will get me out mm-hmm. of bed? Because I just want to sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I try, like I have different desks and different places to sit mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, you you never know exactly what, especially if you work on a lot of projects and stuff, mm-hmm. it's hard to prioritize. So you just kind of got to walk around and kind of feel which project is going to suit you best at that time of the day, in which room. Like, it's, I don't know, for me, it's very much of a gut kind of thing. Nice. So you kind of bounce between projects as you're, like, if you get stuck on one, you just go to another desk and work on something else? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. bounce around a lot, yeah. I mean, there are times when, like, say, if I'm editing something in third person or writing something in third person and I accidentally switch to first person, I'll be like, hmm, I am working on a first person story. Maybe I should work on the first person story because my brain is weirdly automatically doing that anyway. So trying not forcing yourself to do certain things, kind of going with the flow and Mm -hmm. kind of bouncing around. There's always something creative to be done, I feel like, or something that can boost your inspirato. 
Definitely. Even if it's just binge watching Riverdale, baby. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I love me some Jughead. I'm down with it. Perfect. <laughs> um, so, given your background, there's there's two questions that I wanted to ask you about advice. And uh, what's, okay. <laughs> what's some of the worst advice you hear writers being given? I don't know. Write what you know. I don't yeah. know. I don't. There's there's a I, that is that is just weird advice. I think. Um, but I don't know if it's really advice or where they get it from. But like a lot of my younger students, well, like teenage and high school students, they are obsessed about word count. Mm-hmm. Like they think word count is the what makes a story or the number of pages is what makes a story and they're like how much do I have left on this story and I'm like oh well you haven't even hit a conflict yet and they're like yeah but I have 10 pages (laughs) well that okay so I mean it's it's very strange they'll like yell out their word count like to each other like it's a competition Hmm. so I don't I don't know where they got this idea from I don't know if they get that in school or probably I, yeah I'm, I'm just no thinking idea. of all the Either essays <laughs> yeah I mean I think it's a very strange thing to even think about word count mm-hmm. when you're writing a story unless it's something like for school where it's like it has to be three pages front and back mm-hmm. right maybe they don't do front and back anymore do they even write I don't know I don't know. I think they have to submit. I think word count has become more important because a lot of stuff is actually submitted digitally. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I I, I don't know where, I don't know. But I I think that and the kind of focusing on quantity Mm -hmm. is is a strange thing. And I I think the write what you know is, is kind of strange. Because if I only wrote what I knew, I mean, I would be writing i would have written pins and that was basically it yeah <laughs> there you go <laughs> like, I, I don't, speculative fiction would I, not I exist i have not been anywhere <laughs> i don't know anything i go and learn it when i want to write a book mm-hmm. i go and do research and talk to people and whatnot because i'm interested and that's when i learn it but then it falls out <laughs> you only have so much book. space <laughs> Yeah, I really, I, I really don't have. I only have enough space for one novel at a time and all of the Simpsons song lyrics. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta prioritize. Come on. I think I your priorities are pretty well balanced. <laughs> if I can't sing Sherry Bobbins songs, I don't want to live. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. So, where can people find you online and find more of your work? Uh, you can find me on jessicamchughbooks.com. I am pretty active on Facebook, <laughs> facebook.com slash author dot Jessica um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I'm the Jess McHugh, and that's M-C-H-U-G-H. Um, you can just Google me. I'm there. Pretty much. I'm hanging guys. out. <laughs> Probably stuff you don't even want to find. I don't know. <laughs> I always get scared because my students Google me all the time, and it's, it's <laughs> not good. You're like, it's okay, guys. I I just um, I just don't only <laughs> write kids' books. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, like one of the kids, like they they looked at my website while we were in class, and she brought up the cover to uh, Green Kangaroos, and yeah. she points to the back, and she's like, "What's this word mean?" And I look over, and it's cunt cutters. <laughs> and I was like, "Nothing. That's not a word." <laughs> I made you know? it up. <laughs> yeah. What's uh, Darla Decker? Look at that. Darla Decker's for you. Let's go over there, and then they open the book. What makes a kiss French? Damn it! No! <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is appropriate for you! <laughs> Why'd they hire me? <laughs> yeah, I don't... I have no idea. <laughs> You're opening up world. children love me. Of course. <laughs> you bring up things like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kids understand more than we, we think that they do. You know? <laughs> So that's probably why kids like you. You talk to them like they're, you know, humans, which doesn't happen all yeah. the time. <laughs> and then they go home and they're like, teacher said cut cutter. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> no, I would never. I would never. I would say muffin slicer. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> that's so much more appropriate. <laughs> Is this a good interview? It's amazing. <laughs> I don't know if it's good because I just can't stop laughing. <laughs> so there you go, folks. Uh, just take home a few words of of yeah. uh, cunt cutter and, <laughs> and muffin slicer and you're going to have a great day now. <laughs> Bone box. Oh yeah. <laughs> It will spread. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. It'll make you one of the cool kids. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. All audio recorded in-house at Ninth Story Studios is recorded on Rode microphones. Find out more information about their great products over at Rode.com. That's R-O-D-E dot com. A big thank you to Rode for helping us make this show sound so good. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, iTunes page, and more. From C. Watson, 98. Incredible. I love story podcasts. I listen to this one in particular whenever I'm in my car. Such a great show. Can't wait for more. Thanks so much. Max Steele. A thrilling variety of stories. I literally, as of 6-15-2017, just caught up with this podcast after binging season four to present, and it's been great. The variety of the stories in the library means you don't get stuck in a rut or burned out on the same characters over and over. My only complaint is that I didn't discover this podcast when it started so I could have seasons one through three in my memory. After finishing this review, I'm heading over to become a patron of the show, and I encourage everyone who has given this a five-star rating to go do the same. Thanks for the review and for your support. 
We have been going through the archives and pulling all the old content we can find together and posting those up to our archive website, which you would have access to as a patron of the show for as little as $2 a month. From the UK, Gorgoth Knight. Legendary. Great. If you love great horror and awesome voice acting, this podcast is for you. Thank you for the great show. Can't wait for the next one. Thanks so much for that. From Tico90, Mind Blown. I work nights at the post office and my commute to work is long. And I bore of hearing music and music makes my 8 to 12 hour shift seem like an eternity. But I started to listen to the Wicked Library and the Lift and my shift seemed to move faster and faster. My work passed in a blink of an eye. And it is due to this amazing and mind-blowing podcast. As I move my mail from one place to another and process the mail, it's like I'm not even there. I've been transported to the library itself, and I want to thank you for this. And please keep it up. Y'all are amazing. A new and forever listener. Well, thanks so much. We're glad to have you on board. Helping the mail get delivered. Look at that. The Wicked Library. We're making the mail come to you. From Once Upon a Fan perfect. I'm a horror podcast junkie. I listen to them while working, while running, driving, etc., and I foam with the mouth for new episodes of The Wicked Library. Well-written, well-acted, and totally entertaining. Thank you. From A.J. Dvorak, the best of horror fiction. If you love No Sleep, Creepy, Tales to Terrify, Tannis, Rabbits, The Black Tapes, or We're Alive. Wow, we're mentioned with some pretty cool shows there. Um, or We're Alive type shows, you must add The Wicked Library to your horror podcast arsenal. I never thought I would be a listener who would financially support a podcast. But for this excellent show, I am a donor through Patreon and proud of it. Do yourself a favor, listen to a few episodes, and I guarantee you'll find yourself anxiously awaiting for next week's episode. Excellent host, narrators, and stories, highly recommended. I'm an old man, and, and you, you made me blush. So thanks so much. I really appreciate that. From Ambrosiac. Love it. I couldn't get through the day without my podcasts. This is one of my faves for sure. Keep it up, guys. Thanks so much. From MGLLPZ, which I'm not sure if that's supposed to sound like something. I'm just going to spell it because I am so bad at pronouncing things that are clever. One of the best horror podcasts. I've been listening to the podcast for about a year now. And as soon as my phone notifies me a new episode is up, I'm thrilled. I've never been disappointed at all ever since the No Sleep podcast directed me here. Keep up the awesome work, guys. It's much appreciated. Mike. Heather32174 from a new hardcore fan. I am loving this podcast. I'm obsessed with No Sleep creepy and chilling tales and a whole bunch of old-time radio horror podcasts the wicked library is right up there with them i can't stop listening i hope you get many more listeners fans and supporters and finally kate ram rajmed raj rajmed cater k-a-t-e-r-a-j-m-e-d love it Started with No Sleep and moved on to the Wicked Library. Really impressed and so glad I stumbled across it. Thanks for the great show and amazing storytelling. 
Thank you all so much for taking the time to rate and review the show. I'm sorry that so many of you ended up at the end of the show, but you're here. You're in the show. Today's episode of the Wicked Library was made possible thanks to the support of the following patrons. Assistant Librarian Scott Jepson, Aaron McCormick, Aaron Vleck, Ada Lee Terrell, Alex Hernandez, Amy Bates, Andrew Dvorak, Ariel Teague, Anthony Buffundo, Bobby Brooks, Brad Erickson, Bria Green, Brianna Lang, Byron K. Veerling, Cameron Callahan, Chris Brown, Kareen White, Everett Lathrop, Francesca D. Martinez, Freya Mills, Gavino Aguayo, Heather Caval, Heiko Fasse, John Casey, James Powell, Jamie Hardy, Jennifer Troxel, Justy Hilberry, Kathy Thompson, Kelly Perkins, Keo San, Lisa M. DeVol, Marcel Ward, Melissa Dupi, Michael Lusty Smith, Michael Velez, Nick Wang, Paul Schwarz, Preston Waller, Pooh Lee, Raphael Estrada, Robert Light, Seth Williams, Sharon Carrollton, Sophia Rivera, Tamara Reloda, and Yosel Lorenzo. Thanks so much for your support. It means a lot to us. You make this show possible. And uh, until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for the ravens to claw their way out of your insides. Ha 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 ha!